We're going straight into it, dude. Yeah. Have you made plentiful notes for tonight? <laughs> what was that, son? I'm a bit of a thicko. <laughs> I keep them in my mind palace. It's the only thing that's in your mind. Oh. You always, I was editing the uh, old school show and then just that came on. You left it in, didn't you? I did, yeah. It, uh, it, it, it took me by surprise, so I didn't remember it. You'd be asking why I left it in as well. Okay, well, it was funny. Well, was funny. well, you said after that, put it at the end as an outtake, and I thought, nah, I can't be bothered, so I'll just cut that. It, act- it actually worked in contact. I just cut that out and left it in. Yeah, no, you did a good job with that episode. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Daredevil entered the 1980s in solid hands. Under editor-in-chief Jim Shooter, Marvel was experiencing an unread... <laughs> can't do it. Uh, we've just tried to do it the way Kevin Smith does comic book men. I'm going to have to pull this at the end or at the beginning, aren't I? Yeah. He's always gesticulating wildly with his arms and pointing at people and doing a mission! Mike Zapsic! Facial expression. And while we were watching it the other day, we thought, we'll try and do the show like that. We'll try and be very animated and yeah. tossing out arm gestures. And Daredevil entered the 80s with solid hands. Under editor Jim Shooter. <laughs> I just can't do it. I can't take it seriously. <laughs> You can't take Kevin Smith seriously. There is that, but I don't fuzzy mind. It'd be true. To be honest with you. <laughs> we'll go again. <clears throat> Daredevil enters... <laughs> Bullseye. <laughs> is that an issue we're not covered today? Oh, yes, it is. 23 minutes, just so I can cut it straight out. Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. It's part two of Daredevil this week. Yes. Which I'm excited about. You, yeah, a little less so. Damn, I'm always laid back. Hey, uh, I'm excited on the inside. Is, is that what it is? You're excited on the inside. Yeah. I'm but all, you, you I'm have to warm and tingly on the inside. You have to exude this outwards. For the people at home, or at work, or in the car, or on the bus, or on the train. Because we don't know where people listen. They could be on the toilet. They could be, yeah. <laughs> Which would be appropriate. <laughs> Sitting to us, listening to us on the crapper. Yeah. In many ways, our spiritual home. <laughs> Hello, welcome. We're glad you could join us. We have nothing to talk about this week. No. No guest appearances. No. Unless you've done one that I don't know of. Nah, I have not. No gifts. No, we're saddened. Still waiting for my gift, guys. <laughs> you keep dropping hints, though. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure somebody will send you something sometime. Just, just a pity gift. Yeah, just to <laughs> shut me up. Nothing wrong with a pity. Sometimes pity is good. We like that. So we may as well go straight into emails. John Wilson is our first emailer. Uh, dear Jeff and Mike, which is quite funny. I like that. That's amusing. Uh, Je- Jeff. 
<laughs> Jeff has emailed in to pretend to be John after that that little intro. Jeff and Mike from Prices to Crisis. Right. Okay. Jeff Taylor and Mike Baylor. Okay. Mikey Mike oh. in the house. Okay. He's pretending just, to be, just not this house. Just not this house. No. See, you see what he did though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's pretended that he's emailed to a different show. Right, okay. So you see, yeah, it's good. It's I like, I like that. <laughs> I, I'm all for propagating confusion. It worked. It did. <laughs> Uh, uh, what does John say? Yes, John says uh, that he's listening to the Marvel Now episodes, which he's going back a bit. Yeah. I think. But I think he's a, a little bit behind. And he, he talks about Rick Remender, who we said we'd not read a lot of Rick Remender, and he's recommending Venom. This is, of course, the introduction of Flash Thompson as Venom, Soldier and Avenger, reimagining the symbiote concept and succeeding on several levels. It has much of the character drama that Spidey Boops have had in their best days, and though the drama takes turns with fighty action and bad guy mystery, the denouement of the run left me rather unexpectedly in tears. You mean may not be the weepy child that I am, but I do still expect you'll enjoy the 22 issues. I've read the first five or six since this email came in, and it is good. Okay. It's very good. I'm quite surprised that it was cancelled. It seems that uh, it was quite a good book, so I don't know why it was cancelled. I think it was because there was an awful lot of spider titles. Yeah. He says he'll refund us the cost of this email if we don't like it. <laughs> but I disagree. there's not a lot of spider titles at the minute. There are. There's Superior Spider-Man. Okay. Superior Foes of Spider-Man. Right. And Superior Spider-Man Team. Well, it's only three Minimum Spider-Man Carnage. titles. Carnage has got his own title. Uh, do, do you consider Venom them... had his own title. Alright, do you consider Nightwing a Batman title? Yes. Do you? Yes. Alright, so you consider the extended family to be Bat titles. Yeah. See, with Spider-Man, I wouldn't consider Carnage a Spider-Man title. But... Um, but I don't... Okay. And there's Scarlet Spider I well. can understand... You, if you consider them, then all right, fine. But I don't think you've not had to read any of those other books. No, to read Superior Spider-Man. They're still part of that category. I mean, no, okay, fair enough. Well, all right, okay, uh, all right. I'll, I'm not going to argue with it. Because you're right, quite <laughs> frankly. Uh, John continues, I know what you're thinking, and you're right, that making a completely unrelated tangential comment in passing, with zero reference to this comment for the rest of the episode, that this sort of comment would be safe from inspiring your listeners to write an email. I'm sorry to say that you were wrong. Well, I've been frequently wrong about that, haven't I? Mm-hmm. I'll just toss something off in the email section, and we will get nothing more <laughs> emails about that one comment. And you don't even remember the comment? No, frequently I don't. Frequently I don't even remember saying it. I'm Sweated blood, tears, I've put joy, I've got blisters on my fingers from typing up these intense notes where I psychoanalyse each and every single panel, every word balloon, every caption in a comic book to explore them, to to look into the hidden depths, to analyse the drama totally and utterly, to spend hours poring over one panel to look at the symbolism and the depth and what was the writer really talking about here in what is, let's be honest, a fighty, fighty comic book. And what do people email about? Bob Kane. (laughs) John's not emailing about Bob Kane. John is emailing saying that I said that Jim Starlin's Warlock was good. Well, it is good. I, I like it a great deal. You're wrong. It was crap. No, no, no. That's that's not what he's saying. He, he says uh, that when Roy Thomas and, and Mike Friedrich... John, uh, John's talking about the early days of Jim Sterling. He, he says the Roy Thomas-Mike Friedrich stuff was quite good. 
but he was fascinated by it. Uh, but then the book petered out and died. But then Stalin came along and takes the Jesus analog character of Warlock and pits him against a ruthlessly imperialistic, corrupt future version of himself. Talk about your religio-historical metaphor. And the art was great, and the new supporting characters were fun. And Thanos! There is just so much good stuff here. So yeah, Starling's Warlock is good. I'd love to hear you delve into it someday if there's room in the book. Well, it's funny you should mention that. (laughs) Because I do believe... Yes. We have an issue of that penciled in for that 70s show. Which is going to be a number of shows, but I like that title. Yeah. Those 70s shows, we may call them. Just to be more accurate Mm -hmm. about what we're saying. So stay tuned, young Mr. Wilson. Because there may be some Stalin coming your way. I'm going to leave you now. I'm going to pot some champagne when I finally catch up to current. And you're welcome to stop by for a drink. Some say he's Luke Giaconetti, but they're wrong. He's John M. Wilson. <laughs> I like that. I like what he did, though. That's very good. Thank very you, John. Fun. Thank you for emailing in. We, we appreciate that you're enjoying it. Speaking of Luke Giaconetti, it's if we plan this stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Some say he's Luke Giaconetti. Others say... The, the John Wilson. All we know is he's really Luke Giaconetti. <laughs> Unless he's Luke. Unless he's John, he's John Wilson. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh, it was me, the Joker, all along. Oh, Everyone's I was Batman. fooled by the fact that you had a moustache Joker. <laughs> if Batman is the straight man, does that make the Joker Luke Costello? I do like Luke's headings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he puts a lot of thought into them and plans them out weeks in advance. I would imagine that they come to him just, you know... On like his way from to work. the ether, he'll be driving along, minding his own business. I was minding my business, driving along, <laughs> minding his business, as we say, minding his business, driving. And then along. he drives past a church with a, a, a hole with the, the roof of the holy name church. Yeah, he's not strange. He just likes to live his life that way. And he'll just go. I know what I can call this email, and he'll be very blind and blessed. He'll be. I know what we can call this one. It'll be one of those moments. Getting strange looks from the other people in the cars. <laughs> the other people in the cars are looking at him going, that guy sounds like Brian Blessed. Gordon's alive. Well, that's for next week. Well, that's for next week's episode. Yeah, Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Ooh, which one are you? I'll be Tweedledee. Excellent. Oh. <laughs> Not sure I approve. Hey, fellas, says Luke, I wanted to drop a few quick notes about the fourth dreadful birthday Joker episode as you guys covered one of the few runs of Batman I've read. It was unintentional, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Dini's Detective Comics run was indeed a classic and one that ended much too soon. The fallout was perfect. I used to espouse that the reason why Batman the Animated Series worked as well as it did was that a 22-page comic translated to a 22-minute television episode. The idea of the single-issue comic book with a beginning, middle, and end is not a revolutionary concept, but taking that and applying it to animation whilst retaining the maturity and intellectual honesty of the comic was. So when it came time for Dini to write detective comics, he wrote the same sort of stories as were developed for the animated stories. 22-page stories with a beginning, middle, and end. The issue that dealt with the terrible trio, Detective 832, The Fourth Man, was one of my personal favourites. And the Dr. Phosphorus story, Detective 825, was one which seemed like it would have been perfect for animation. Overall, a great run of stories, and I'm glad you guys picked the classic Joker story from it, which to me was always a more violent and, in a lot of ways, much funnier take on the classic episode Christmas with the Joker. That original episode, Christmas with the Joker, was originally much darker. Instead of kidnapping Gordon, Bullock and Summer Gleason in the original script, the Joker abducted an actual family from their house on Christmas Eve. 
Regarding Grant Morrison's prose story, I wanted to bring up the Moonstone comic series The Phantom Generations, which was a series of illustrated prose comics with adventures of the various men who have taken on the mantle of the Phantom over the years, one of which was Patrick McGowan, mm. if you watch the film. I think I have I'm not a number! I am the Phantom! I don't know where that came from. This series ran for over 13 issues plus a special and the final three stories covering 16 generations of the ghosts who walk in this unique format. I didn't know other people did uh, prose comics book stories. Other than, you know, the obvious ones like in our annuals there were prose stories, weren't there? Yeah. The UK annuals. Oh, right, that's excellent. Novel did the classic tales run. Were they not comic adaptations of novels? Mm. Or were the prose stories in there? Were classics illustrated novel... Prose comics, were they? I think it was, yeah. Right. Okay, fair enough. Very much looking forward to hearing about the new 52 and the death of the family, Luke. Well, now that you've heard them, I hope you enjoyed them. I'd be quite upset if you didn't, to be honest with you. Our next email is Chris Franklin. Chris Franklin. Hello, Leylands! He starts off by plugging Supermates, which is supermatescomic.blogspot.com, where you can go and read stuff about the podcast. Very good. I highly recommend it. It's him and his missus talking about comics. It's great. I like it a lot. They've done three episodes out of this, and I, I enjoyed all of them. Andrew continues, Chris, you picked three of my childhood faves. I bought every one of these off the shelf when they were published. Oh, this is Dreadful Birthday Day 3. Yeah. Isn't it? The, the Jose Luis Garcia Lopez one, and um, Dreadful Birthday Day Joker, and what else are we covering that one? Joker is Wild. Yeah. Did the Joker is Wild, didn't we? Batman 321. <laughs> 321. Ted Rogers gag. My mum had to buy me as I was five at the time. Chris, piss off. The cover <laughs> by Joyce Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Scared me as a kid. I mean, Batman and Robin were burning alive. It's heavy stuff for a five-year-old, but I love the comic nonetheless. This was my introduction to Dick Sprang's awesome Joker-mobile, which he designed in the 50s. Simonson saved it from obscurity. It's appeared in many comics and other media since, even on Brave and the Bold. Good point on Gordon discarding the invitation, though. Wouldn't he take anything that came from the Joker to the bomb squad immediately? Poor Gordon always suffers temporary stupidity when it's needed to move the plot along. (laughs) Actually, that doesn't make him much younger than me. Because I'm pretty sure that issue of Batman was when I was ten. So I'm making five, four or five years older than me. Mm. That kind of works, doesn't it? I'm surprised you guys don't know about Taffy. Taffy is a sweet, artificially fruit-flavoured confection. Kind of like chewing gum. Um, yeah, I just thought it was toffee. It's murder on any dental work you may have, like Toffee. I always loved it when Robin would get away from college and guest him one of the regular Bat titles. I'm a big fan of Dick's teen wonder phase, and I'll forgive him for being taken in by the Joker's flimsy disguise. Redheads just kind of have that power, you know. Yeah, but, Chris, it's a redhead that's the Joker in disguise. Now, unless he suddenly morphed into Jilson John, which, okay, I would accept a bit of Robin uh, excitement at that prospect... No, I'm just not buying that the Joker in drag doesn't look anything like the Joker in drag. A dick sees a redhead and suddenly he does have a teen wonder. (laughs) The Joker's bang flag gag was often used after this, and one standard example was the uncut version of Batman Beyond Return of the Joker, where he kills his henchman Bonk in like fashion on screen. Return of the Joker is awesome! I remember always seeing that. Have I always seen the uncut version? I've only ever bought the uncut version. When I found out they'd done a sanitised, edited version, I didn't buy it. I bought the uncut version. Do you remember? We were in Florida. Yeah, I remember. And I bought it from that big Virgin mega store that we got lost in for a couple of hours that used to be on downtown Disney. But I remember seeing it on TV. 
and I, I always remember that. Are you thing. sure we've not just watched my DVD? If I'm mixing the two up, but I have seen it on TV. I don't recall Batman Beyond Return of the Joker ever being on television. Yeah, it was. Is it? Um, Network or Toonami even used to have animated movies on. Right. I only ever remember seeing Mask of the Phantasm on television. It was usually on a Saturday, and they'd show things like the Justice League cartoon. Oh, which we loved. Yeah, I've got it on DVD as well. So. Yes, yeah. They, they just show animated DC movies. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember ever seeing Return of the Joker. Oh, they do the Dragon Ball Z or Gundam Wing movies as well. Right, okay, fair dues. The Harlequin Baking Company got me to thinking, continues Chris. Why doesn't Bruce Wayne just buy up and close and destroy every business or building related to clowns, pranks, jokes, etc. in Gotham? Why stop there? Close down an umbrella factories, puzzle manufacturers, or anything with the number two? <laughs> That's an exceptionally good point. I mean, the problem with that is he could close down a legitimate umbrella factory that was nothing to do with the Penguin. Yeah. That would be unfortunate. But closing down everything that has a number two in it, I think that's valid. They must, the Joker... Why the Joker two in it? Two-Face. Oh, right. Every time okay. he's got a den, it's got a two in it, isn't yeah. it? It's, it's called Double Deuce or something like that. And you're like, Batman, it's not <laughs> going to take you long to figure out where he is, is it? The Corgi ads always bring back great memories. I had many of those cars and picked up quite a few in my adult life as well. Corgi did release the Joker-mobile from this comic in the Batman car series from about ten years ago. The Superman-mobile was actually created by Corgi for DC and then featured in the comics. Yeah, I remember that. That was quite funny. There's an issue with Superman where he drives that Supermobile. He has to go into outer space and I think... He drives a car in outer space? Yeah. Well, it's a floaty (laughs) thing. It's a flying car. It's the future, Jerry. (laughs) And there's kryptonites, so we have to go in the car. It's, uh, it, it actually explains why it's got boxing gloves at the front. Okay. <laughs> it's, 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 it's wacky awesomeness in the Bronze Age style Right. Is all I'm going to say. It's got boxing gloves on it just in case he ever needs to fight Muhammad Ali on the way back. Oh, why not? You never know when Superman's going to need to fight Muhammad Ali. Of course. <laughs> the cover for Batman 366 does have an interesting story behind it. It was detailed in an issue of the old Amazing Heroes magazine, and I think I recall most of the details. A comic art collector named Todd Rice commissioned the piece that was eventually used for the cover. Rice had a unique talent. He would create a 3D diorama of comic art and then present them to the comics artists in exchange for original pieces of Batman art. He created a piece for Simonson, and the artist reciprocated by drawing him this. Someone at DC saw the image and worked it out with Rice and Simonson to use it for a cover. Like you said, Andy, the story was written around the cover, with Mensch taking it in a South American direction. Simonson intended it to be in Gotham, atop one of the usual Gothic towers. Strangely enough, Rice has another claim to fame. The DC character Obsidian in Infinity Inc. and Son of Alan Scott was named after him. Alright, so I partially remembered all of that then. Mm. The conclusion of the story and Jason swinging in as Robin were huge to me as a kid. It was my first inkling that DC may actually replace Dick as Robin. I just expected Jason to take another name and keep his cool costume from Tech 526. Of course, after this, he did go back to that suit with no name for a few issues before Dick turned up with a spur suit and his blessing for Jason to succeed him. And you guys can pick on Jason all you want. (laughs) I prefer the original Toddster to this one, but as long as you ain't giving Dick no flack, we be cool. Cool on the gang. Looking forward to your Joker wrap-up, but please stop talking about your show coming to an end. You're depressing me. <laughs> this is what Skype is for. Take care, Chris. Well, you know, it's still all up in the air, isn't it? Could go either way at this point. Our final email is David Guterres. Leyland's ancient and new. <laughs> David, piss off! 
I think thematically your possibly final regular show needs to cover James Robinson's Starman. It is, as you've probably told infinitely, a wonderful father-son story. Even if you skip to the final volume, it would be a grand end. Best of luck to Michael on his interviews. Thank you very much. And you see, I followed that up with Chris saying, stop talking about the show ending. I plan this stuff! You, you do. <laughs> In answer to David's question, we already know what the last show is going to be. Do we? Yes, we've talked about it. All I'm going to say is it would bring the show full circle. Yes. Of course, that means that if we never do a final show, we will never do that. Yeah. Which is a shame, because I, I want to cover that at some point. But, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see what's happening. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll plug some. <laughs> We're doing show. Green Lantern's Secret Origin, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's in purple, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're going to take a quick break and we will plug a show of infinite magnitude and magnificent splendiferousness. I don't know if they're even words. I just made sounds up and they came out of <laughs> my mouth. They sounded all right. In the so. form of a sentence of some description. And we'll be right back with Give the Devil His Due, part two. Sponsored by Mountain Dew. <laughs> this book is to be neither an accusation nor a confession, and least of all an adventure. For death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped shells, were destroyed by the war. This July 28th, In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom, presents All Quiet on the Western Front. I'm Tom Panneries, and to commemorate the centennial of the First World War, I will be dedicating a special episode to Eric Maria Remarque's all-time classic war novel. Along with the look at the novel, I will discuss two film adaptations, and then take a quick glance at poetry and songs of the war to end all wars. That's this July 28th, at incountry.podomatic.com Daredevil entered the 80s in solid hands. Under editor Jim Shooter, Marvel was experiencing a new renaissance as Shooter quickly lost some dead weight and shifted characters and creators around. Shooter didn't make many new friends, but he did make Marvel Comics magnificent again. Not least, Daredevil. With Frank Miller promoted to full-time writer and penciler, Miller was free to take the series in new directions. Before wholesale reboots were the in-thing, writers were a lot more creative when reimagining a character. One of the changes Miller made to Daredevil was to remove him swinging around town, something Miller felt was far too similar to both Spider-Man and Batman. He set DD in a realistic and recognisable New York, although he did take artistic liberties, moving buildings closer together so DD could more easily leap from rooftop to rooftop, and adding elevated trains to heighten reality where no such thing exists in real life. He was also prepared to take the comics code to the edges of what it considered acceptable, and the level of violence in the book was increased. In one famous scene, Daredevil kicks through the windshield of a car, places his boot firmly in Snitch Turk's face, pulls him out of the car through the broken glass, and terrorises the man for information, a scene that even Miller thinks he may have taken too far. The violence wasn't the only controversy in the Miller run. Issue 167 of Daredevil was supposed to feature a story entitled Child's Play, but ran afoul of editorial censorship due to a scene where a child is seen taking PCP. 
The story eventually saw print in issue 183, whilst issue 167 featured a quick fill-in by writer David Michelini. Miller's run, however, will be forever remembered for one character. Electra. As a rule, retcons are notoriously difficult to pull off. The term retroactive continuity refers to any story which implants a previously unknown element into an already established narrative. Miller managed to get away with this, not once with Elektra, but twice with the introduction of Stick, a Mr. Miyagi type who trained Matt how to use his radar sense. Miller got away with this, I think, due to, number one, Daredevil being less than 20 years old at this point, and a large part of that time it was being published bi-monthly, and B, Matt's time at college with Foggy was by and large unexplored territory. It's not like Peter Parker, whose adventures we followed so closely that if one were to, say, write a story in which a beloved character was revealed to have fallen pregnant by an arch supervillain adversary, and given birth within stories where she was seen to be wearing a bikini, Clearly, that would be relentlessly mocked, and deservedly so. With Daredevil, Miller had room to manoeuvre. Also, Miller, by his own admission, is not an avowed fan of continuity, and would play fast and loose whenever necessary to tell his story, and Elektra, who was introduced in issue 168, was a resounding success. You're not letting that go, are you? I'm not letting Sins Pass go, no. It's one of those things you don't want to keep mentioning it, because if you don't mention it, maybe it'll just disappear. Yes. But the other side of that is, I have copies of it. So, you know, what can you do? This long-form storyline running over a number of issues would see Miller tell the tale of her and Matt's love as it first bloomed in college, through to their separation and eventual meeting up, but this time as an assassin and vigilante. Miller, a self-confessed Freud fan, imbued many of these stories with psychosexual overtones and managed to create a fascinating character in Electra. Electra came from wealth, and over the year plus we would see Electra and Matt deepen the relationship. Matt even tells Electra of his abilities within minutes of meeting her, a remarkably sloppy piece of storytelling for Frank Miller, which leads like he just wanted this to be out of the way rather quickly. After a botched kidnapping and ransom scenario, Electra would witness her father being killed by the police and lose all faith in the legal system, leaving town never to be seen, and crucially never mentioned, again until she shows up as an assassin for hire. Alongside this, Miller re-establishes the kingpin of crime, borrowed from Spider-Man, and has Bullseye be jailed, requiring the kingpin hire a new assassin, Electra. When Daredevil and Daily Bugle reporter Ben Urich foil Kingpin's plans to control the Murr of New York, he decides that a lesson needs to be taught. He targets Nelson and Murdoch as the lawyers that were hired on behalf of the Bugle, and orders Electra to kill Foggy Nelson. This leads us neatly into Daredevil issue 181, cover dated April 1982. The cover by Miller and Jansen has become iconic in comic book circles, and has Elektra engaging in mortal combat with Bullseye, both wielding Elektra's weapon of choice, the Psy, whilst a large symbolic representation of Daredevil looms large in the background. It was a special double-sized issue, and the copy is simple. Bullseye. Elektra. One wins... One dies. It's also the cover of my huge omnibus. Mm-hmm. Which is what I told your mum when I met her. I have a huge omnibus. Look, you can see Daredevil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you extend it outwards, it says Daredevil, the man without fear. <laughs> anyway. 
Anyway, what do you think of that cover, Michael? Yeah, it's good, I like it. I love that it's the same exact cover as the original comic, but they've changed the price to ninety nine ninety nine. <laughs> oh, yeah. They should really have changed that to number one, not yeah. left it as 181. They should really have blanked that bit out, because that just looks a bit silly. Mm. It, is, it is a pretty... I like how it looks like it's pencils straight to colours as well. It could be at this point. I mean, I don't know if that's a Miller-Jansen joint... It could just be Miller on his own. I didn't look it up because, quite frankly, I'm lazy. But, uh, yeah, it's a good cover, isn't it? Mm. They do look a bit ballet dancy esque Yeah. But uh, a lot of Miller's fights look like that. Last Hand is credited to Frank Miller, story and art. Klaus Janssen, finished art and colours. Joe Rosen, letters. And Denny O'Neill, editor. It's quite a synopsis, this one, as well, so you can have a drink. <laughs> Bullseye is still in prison exercising in his personal gym and ruminating on how much he hates Daredevil not for beating him not even for ruining his rep but for saving his life and now he has to listen to all the talk of how he's a has-been and a never-was the debilitating headaches are also a source of constant irritation especially when Harry the police officer in charge of doling out Bullseye's medication feels the need to overemphasize the importance of this small amount of power so when Tom Snide, the TV chat show host, offers to interview Bullseye on live television, Bullseye initially demurs. However, when Bullseye learns that the Kingpin has a new favourite from the Punisher of all people, he takes the gig. A few days later, all is arranged. Bullseye will be allowed to wear his costume and the interview will take place in Rikers Island. Bullseye is manacled, but as the interview starts, he experiences another crippling headache and Harry, as usual, makes a big deal of handing out the pills. Bullseye takes the pill into his mouth, but spits it back at Harry with force, blinding the guard and making his escape. A few days later, Bullseye hits up some old underworld sources and learns the name Electra and her mark, Foggy Nelson. He studies up on Nelson and Murdoch and is stunned by the resemblance between Daredevil and Murdoch. It's only when he learns Murdoch is blind that he laughs at the idea. He's what he thought was Daredevil? It's kind of embarrassing. The next day, Bullseye watches an open court session as Murdoch and Nelson win another case and plants a bug on Foggy, following him from a distance to learn more about Electra. Electra makes it easier for him, kidnapping Foggy when he gets in a taxi, but when he recognises her as Matt's girl from college, Electra cannot bring herself to kill Foggy. Bullseye, however, has no such qualms about Electra and attacks. The fight is bloody and brutal, each opponent equally matched, but Bullseye gains the upper hand, slicing Electra's throat with a playing card and then stabbing her with her own sigh. Beaten and battered, Electra stumbles, then crawls to the doorstep of Matt Murdock's brownstone apartment, where she dies in his arms. Unbeknownst to Matt, Bullseye watches. Bullseye continues to watch as Electra is identified in the morgue and his theory that Murdoch is Daredevil gains more traction when Bullseye is forced to speak and Murdoch recognises his voice. Testing his theory out some more, Bullseye is about to leap into Niagara Falls but decides on something more practical and closer, a scalpel aimed at Matt's head which he deflects with his walking stick without even turning. Bullseye flees directly to the Kingpin and tells him his theory. Kingpin thinks Bullseye is delusional but says bring him Dee Dee's body and they'll talk business. Bullseye waits at Matt Murdock's brownstone, but Daredevil is waiting for him. Bullseye is fooled into thinking Murdock is also in the apartment, but Dee Dee isn't in the mood to talk, and the battle takes them over the rooftops. Bullseye uses Electra's sigh against Dee Dee, a move that enrages Daredevil even more, and even though Bullseye gets a few choice moves in stabbing Daredevil with the sigh, throwing Daredevil through a window, Daredevil manages to gain the upper hand and takes the fight to an elevated train track. 
The duo end up on a phone cable above the street, each balanced precariously. Facing each other, Daredevil leaps gently on the line, causing Bullseye to stumble. Daredevil catches him but says he will never harm anyone again and deliberately drops Bullseye to the ground, shattering his spine. Later, Bullseye lies in hospital, unable to move, but more than capable of hate. I told you that was an epic one. Mm-hmm. Not quite as dramatic as the Thor one. Uh, excellent opening splash page of Daredevil. Caught in the crosshairs and receiving a bullet to the forehead. It's an astonishing opening and helps us not notice that Daredevil isn't actually in the boot proper for the first third of it. Mm. Everything's bullseye. Well, they did all the issue is about him, yeah? Yeah, it's all from his point of view. He's a, it's all... Later we find this opening is just in Bullseye's mind, imagination or supposition or whatever. And inside Bullseye's mind is quite an interesting place. Yeah. <laughs> We've seen before that Bullseye's rep is far more important to him than anything else, and it's this that's really hurt him. Dying in battle with Daredevil would have been acceptable to Bullseye, owing him his life is sadly not. Extended flashback scene on page two, and the headaches are established in the courtroom of being why Bullseye got away with murder, because it's established that he had a brain tumour, and his lawyer successfully argued that the brain tumour was causing behavioural problems, which turned him into a murderer. I mean, he still gets life in prison, he just doesn't get the cheer. Mm. I suppose it's logical. What I like is how, when he gets his headache, the, the light um, flashes around his head mm. so that when he has it later in the interview he doesn't have that flash around him because he's faking it excellent no I did not notice that <laughs> good point that's a little visual touch I did not notice yeah very good yeah so all that analysing you were saying you did before oh we all know that was cat, <laughs> don't we can't believe I didn't notice that given how big he prominently it is <laughs> around his head when he does actually have the headaches, yes. He's still getting them even though he's had the tumour removed. Yeah. Which I don't think they explain. No. Is it, I don't know, was it a side effect of the operation or... Well, they do say even though he's gotten rid of it, he still gets the headaches. Yeah. He just left it there. Mm, okay. Fair enough. All right. Uh, Miller's out's a lot more scratchy compared to issue 163, which we covered last time. And extra features at the back of the omnibus and interviews with Miller and Jansen state that Miller went from full pencils to breakdowns, presumably as a reaction to the monthly schedule. As it goes forward from here, there'll be a lot more Jansen before we get to the Miller. And Klaus Jansen will eventually just take over as penciler and inker. Hmm. He does warn Harry that Harry's a dead man. Yeah. At that point, you know Harry's a dead man, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> There's no messing around with it. No way around it. He's a dead man. Uh, Miller uses Bullseye's eyes a great deal in this issue. There are a number of different close-ups of them at the beginning and end of the story. Mm. The eyes being the window to the soul, presumably. I don't know if that's what he was playing with. And the Punisher being in jail is set up for the upcoming Child's Play story arc, which pits Daredevil against the Punisher and a, a number of drug pushers from the delayed issue 167. Miller's Punisher is really well done. I liked it an awful lot. He's played very much like the John Reese character from Person of Interest. He's deadly, taciturn, and straight to the point. He's got a lovely line in deadpan humour. Yeah. I love the line, chances are you'll do something dumb and get yourself killed. I'd like that. I thought that was funny. Mm. Punisher has a sense of humour. Who knew? Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> no, he all played as totally serious and straight. It's, it's kind of hard to remember that he once had a sense of humour. Until, until he's written by Ennis. 
Yeah. Well, he doesn't, <laughs> he just doesn't talk in the Garth Ennis runs. Every, everything else about it is funny. Though. Yeah, but Garth, so Garth Ennis' Punisher doesn't say anything, does he? No. Apart from die. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Bullseye's escape from Riker's Island is a, a very exciting, kinetic, and fast-moving action sequence. Mm. But it's dumber than dirt, isn't it? Yeah. It's the weakest part of the story. That, I guess. I, I, I mean, Bullseye does make a comment about how he doesn't cook on to plan. Yeah. So there is elements in the story that Bullseye is making this up as he goes along. Yeah. But there is an extraordinary amount of luck. Like the helicopter. So, well, not just... I mean, the helicopter just showing up. Yeah. When Bullseye's ready to give up, and then suddenly the helicopter appears, and he's like, okay, <laughs> that was remarkably fortunate. But mine was the cop shoots Bullseye at point-blank range. Yeah. But fortunately hits the big metal chain around his waist that he's manacled to. What if he shot him in the head or in the chest? What if he'd just gone around and put you down? and shot him in there he's at point blank he wouldn't have missed yeah so that was inordinately helpful I mean we can argue that Bullseye has just spat the pill the medication into Harry's eye mm. so alright he's a bit off sorts though but he's still got one eye oh why did he just jump backwards and stay away from him well I don't know that's what I mean it's it's a good sequence it's well choreographed it's well choreographed It's but that's what I think it gets by on being kinetic and fast-paced. Yeah. And as you're reading it, you're not actually noticing that, wait a minute, <laughs> this is a bit dumb. Mm. The helicopter bit is very reminiscent of First Blood, isn't it? Yeah. Where he throws a gun instead of a rock, he hits the sniper in the head, knocks him out of the helicopter, and he falls to the floor and dies. Uh, oh, but this was before First Blood. Mm. So Miller's prefiguring First Blood, though. Maybe the producers of First Blood read this? Maybe. I don't know, because I don't remember if that action sequence is in the book. We'll let it go, because it is good. Hmm. It's executed well, even though it's a bit a bit silly. Bullseye heads over to Lou Slaughter and gets the information that he needs, who the Kingpin's new assassin is, and who her mark is. Bullseye and Lou Slaughter have been regular characters in all of Miller's run. And I liked it a lot that when he arrives, Bullseye... Oh, sorry, Slaughter just says, Excellent, you've kept in shape. The Kingpin's new assassin is Electra, and she lives at this address, and she's going after Franklin Nelson. He doesn't even attempt to hide from him, does he? No. He just basically gives him everything he wants to know, and says, Right, go on your way. Don't hurt me. I like how when he gets there, he's like sat watching the guy smoking, and he's like, and you can see him get closer and closer to it through mm. the panels until he steals it in the next page. I love that, that he took it out of his hand without the guy even noticing. I just like his face getting closer and closer <laughs> to it. It is good. It's, yeah, the artwork, the choreography of the art and the panels is brilliant. And Miller does that usual trick of, essentially, there's one big splash page where Bullseye's laughing because he thinks he's figured out Daredevil's secret identity. And Miller does that trick of splitting it up into separate panels. So you know what you're following while you're reading it. It's very good. It's, Excellent. Is this issue not one of those uh, Lex Lethal Man of Steel ones where he finds out the true identity but doesn't believe it? But doesn't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it could be. It is quite similar to that a Man of Steel, isn't it? Not Man of Steel. It was Superman by that point. All right. We're past the Man of Steel by that. Miller's run, as we've mentioned before, received a fair bit of flack for its violence. And this is very violent for its time. The blood is coloured black as perhaps a sop to the comics code. 
but Bullseye slices a cab driver's throat with a playing card, kills five cops, beats on Electra and slices her throat also, before impaling her on her own side, in a move that became iconic and much parodied. To get around the code, Miller would have daggers sever bone and sinew, but completely be unable to cut through cloth. Yeah. Which became a signature move, Mm. in many ways, didn't it? Electra takes the job and goes after Foggy, but when Foggy calls her Matt's girl, it's wonderfully played. Miller sells it all in Electra's body language, from the wide-eyed large panel at the top of the page to her turning her back on Foggy in panel two, to a wide shot of Electra's angry eyes in panel three as she tells Foggy to get out, to the drooped shoulders and lowered head, which allows Bullseye to get the drop on her, because she's out of it. Because she knows she's just kind of blown it mm-hmm. by not killing Foggy Nelson. The next six pages yeah. are Electra and Bullseye's duel, plus her death, and then her crawl to Matt's doorstep, which are almost entirely silent apart from the obligatory onomatopoeia. And Miller and Jansen just do a, a wonderful job with the art in this sequence. It's an absolutely gripping sequence of panels that despite the comic book use of a playing card as a murder weapon is one of the most brutal and realistic depictions of a fight ever seen in a comic to this point certainly a mainstream Marvel comic again it's not Miller's fault that other people saw this scene and took it to extremes Mm. the the action sequences that say other writers will write try to be this but they're not as kinetic they're not as fluid they're not as interesting visually. A lot of this is carried by the art. That's one of the best things about it. Yeah. And the fight scenes, are they're never confusing. You know what's mm. happening all the way through. Yeah, you know exactly what's going on. The movements are all... There's never even an instant between panels where yeah. you go, well, how did she get over there? When a minute ago she was over there, which sometimes you do spot in comic art fights. And they do the trick where the movement's shown through multiple panels, like her falling and getting back up. Mm. It is. It's an absolutely fantastic. It's textbook comic book art, including the the wonderful. Uh, I say wonderful. I don't mean wonderful, <laughs> but the really good scene where Bullseye just picks up a playing card and says, "You're pretty good, but me, I'm magic." And then hurls the card and slices her throat. A scene completely botched in the film. Yeah. It has to be said. That's that's one painful paper cut. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that's what she said? <laughs> oh, that's what Bullseye said in an effort to be James Bond. <laughs> Bullseye chillingly and casually just dons his coat as Electra bleeds out before him. And then he strolls behind her mm. all the way as she makes her way to Matt's. And he just captures magnificently what a sadist he is. Mm. That he just watches her because he wants to see where she goes. And she goes to Matt Murdock. And that last panel on that page where everyone else is blue and he's lit up. Yeah, he's lit. He's, uh, he's got his lighter and he's lighting his cigarette. So he's Miller. He's a Miller panel there, isn't he? Yeah. Because he did that with the Kingpin, didn't he? Turned him into a Miller character mm. by having him smoke. And that's how you turn somebody into well, a Miller character. Why did he have a big cigar at that point? No. Right. He turns him, he takes him from being... The Kingpin's retired, he's gone out of Thingyo with his wife Vanessa. Vanessa gets kidnapped. Right. And the entire issue is him becoming the penguin, the penguin, <laughs> becoming the Kingpin again. <laughs> and it'd be interesting if he became the penguin, penguin didn't it? Uh, Get me Spider-Man. Wilson Chesterfield's Cobblepot. 
and he becomes kingpin in a panel very like that. Right. He stops being Wilson Fisk and he lights the cigar and he becomes the kingpin. Right. It's very good. Very excellent way of doing it. And he does the same here with Bullseye. Uh, Matt catching the scalpel in his cane without turning or even yeah. batting an eyelid is just effortlessly cool. That's Daredevil. Mm. When he's just being cool just because he is. Did no one else notice that, you know, bullseye through a scalpel apparently not no because that kind of is something you would notice it is a bit dark in the morgue there's only what four people in that room yeah morgue's dark wouldn't you imagine a morgue had to be well lit to enable them to do their job you don't want to be cutting a body up with no lights on do you torch oh dear I've just severed his ear (laughs) oh well never mind he's dead (laughs) what's he going to need it for (laughs) (laughs) you can hold it up and see if you can hear oh dear me uh, Bullseye goes back to the kingpin and tells him his theory. The kingpin laughs at him. Mm-hmm. Which is a shame, really, because this could have set up Miller's later story, The Groundbreaking Born Again. Yeah. Couldn't it? I mean, here the kingpin doesn't believe it. But if Bullseye had planted that seed in his head... Yeah. I don't remember if that got referenced in Born Again. I don't... I, I don't. I didn't read Born Again. Have you never read Born I Again? I read this on the bus. All oh, right, okay, fair enough. Uh, fooling Bullseye with the dummy is a little bit convenient. Yeah. It's a dummy and a cassette recorder. Wow, cassette recorders. Be an MP3 recorder now, isn't it? Yeah. Or a computer. Uh, another six pages of silent fight. Magnificently choreographed with beautiful panel layouts. Bullseye using Electra's sigh is a delicious touch that Miller milks for all it's worth. Daredevil saying nothing throughout the fight sells how important this is, but his deliberately dropping Bullseye adds a level of moral ambiguity to his character that has had major ramifications let down the line. Especially given that Daredevil saving Bullseye in the first place ultimately led to Electra's death. I thought that this fight scene was very anticlimactic. Did you? Because they're having this big fight, but then it ends by Daredevil jumping on the rope. And that's I liked that. I thought it was really cool because it's a deliberate action on his part. Yeah, but they both stood on. Do you think it's a, a clothesline or a, a telephone cable? Probably. But I thought it was just a very small ending to a big fight. Yeah, I don't disagree with you, but I think that's why I liked it. I think they're both balanced on this wire. And Daredevil obviously has no trouble with it because he's using his radar sense and Bullseye's struggling, Bullseye's wavering. And Daredevil just does a little bunny hop, deliberately knocking him off. Yeah. It's a deliberate, premeditated action. He knows what he's doing Mm. and does it deliberately. And then he catches him to make it quite clear to Bullseye that, no, this time I'm dropping you. Yeah. And he drops him. And it's kind of like Batman would never do this to the Joker. But Daredevil's but not you Batman. Totally by yeah, Daredevil. Despite what people may think, Daredevil isn't Batman, mm. and he's quite. He doesn't kill him, no. Which is probably worse. Yeah, but he, he doesn't. He doesn't leave him in much of a, a state, does he? Mm. To be honest, I, I thought this was absolutely blinding, and I've said that twice in these Daredevil shows, and I never mean it as a joke. <laughs> Uh, it benefits greatly from its double length. Sometimes a comic is double length because it's an anniversary issue. Sometimes it's an excuse to milk more money from the readers. Rarely is it as perfectly paced as this issue is, which never feels padded, overlong, or full of splash pages. The masterstroke here, though, is that the entire issue is not only narrated by Bullseye, but it's almost entirely from his point of view. Mm. We're not privy 
to the thoughts of the other characters. There are no captions to tell their opinions or even scenes where Bullseye isn't actually present. They're told via his perception of the events. Although a case can be argued that the scene with the kingpin burning his file is supposition and Matt visiting Electra's grave is a bit of a cheat. Bullseye can't possibly know that. Yeah. Although he can imagine that it will happen. So, alright, okay, maybe it's not a cheat. Maybe I just over-exaggerated. The comic is a magnificent culmination of what has been over a year's worth of plotting on behalf of Frank Miller. The rest of it would be about Electra, though. Yes, and Electra's death would inform the next ten issues, Mm. which leads to him leaving the comic. Matt's obsession with Electra's death would carry on. After completely losing it in the wake of her death, Daredevil and Punisher stopped a PCP drug pushing ring and then there was an offbeat issue focusing on Foggy Nelson which was hampered only by the Kingpin not recognising Foggy despite putting a contract out on his life only a few issues earlier. Klaus Janssen took over as full penciler and Miller ramped up the story to his ultimate end game. When Dee Dee's hyper senses go overboard, he needs to contact Stick for aid. Stick is engaged in a battle versus crack ninja team The Hand, and sacrifices himself for the greater good, telling Matt the only person who can defeat The Hand is Electra. Miller engages in yet another retcon in this storyline, stating that the radiation that triggered Matt's senses has long since worn off. But whether this was one step too far for the readership or just got lost in the hyperbole over the return of Electra, it didn't stick and has rarely been mentioned since. Electra was resurrected in Daredevil issue 190, where she was somehow cleansed of her past misdeeds and troubled soul. Daredevil is not aware if she is alive, and this ambiguous ending was in keeping with the character and the story Miller told. Arguably, Electra had served her purpose and should have been allowed to fade away here, and for a time, Miller had an unspoken agreement with Marvel that should there be more Electra stories, he would be the one to tell them. However, in terms of this run, there was one story left to tell. Daredevil, issue 191, cover dated February 1983, has a Miller cover of Daredevil standing upon a rooftop looking aghast and clutching his heart. How does a man search for his own soul, the cover asks. The art is a lot scratchier, signifying Miller's future artistic direction, but the lighting and colouring add up to a very eye-catching piece. It's very Sin City. Not Sin City. Ronin. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. It's very Ronin, which Since would be... Since solid black. Yeah, which would be... Ronin's what he would do after Daredevil, isn't it? He would yeah. go straight to do Ronin. Yeah. So you're essentially seeing the, the direction Miller's art's going to go in. Do you like the cover? Yeah. It's a lot like um, the covers for the new series. It's all scratchy rather than... Well, solid lines. Hmm. Yeah, it's a good cover. Stands out, I suppose. Yeah. Roulette was written and penciled by Frank Miller, with inks by Terry Austin, and colours by Lynn Verley. Daredevil holds the thirty-eight calibre handgun to his head and pulls the trigger. Click. He stood in the sparse hospital room of Bullseye, still unable to move or even talk since their last encounter, and Daredevil places the gun to Bullseye's head. Click. It turns out the reason Daredevil is here is not Electra or Bullseye or any of that. He's here for Chucky Jurgens. 
Chucky's father, Hank, is being accused of embezzling money by a man Hank says is jealous of his promotion. Whilst there, though, Matt discovers Hank's cowed son, Chucky, an emotionally stunted young boy who is obsessed with Daredevil and Bullseye, and their fight in the TV studio from a few years back. To cope with his life, Chucky believes he is Daredevil. To better understand the boy, Daredevil visits him at school the next day, only to realise Chucky is starting to believe that what Daredevil is teaching him is that violence is the answer to every problem. Click. The gun in Dee Dee's hand echoes through the hospital room. The chamber, empty. Daredevil places the gun again to Bullseye's temple. Click. Both still lucky. Daredevil continues to tell Bullseye the story. He follows Jurgens and the plaintiff Jutter to a woodland where they confront each other. Daredevil stops them from killing each other, but Chucky witnesses Daredevil punching his father, which means Chucky's father must be a bad man. As the case goes to trial, one child in the playground taunts Chucky one too many times, and Chucky shoots the kid with his dad's thirty-eight. See, in his own way, Chucky loved his dad, and if his dad was a bad man, then who is left to be good? Dee Dee places the gun to his own head once more. Click. Bullseye's luck just ran out. But before the fatal shot can be taken, Daredevil goes on to tell Bullseye of his own father, and how, as a kid, all the catcalls and taunts finally got to young Matt Murdock when three bullies stole his expensive book that his father had bought him. As the kids start to give the book back to Matt page by page, Matt snaps and beats the kids, breaking a nose. Jack Murdock smacks his own child, so incensed and disappointed is he that his son has flatly disregarded his wishes, and this blurring of lines between right and wrong sets Matt's course as an attorney. Daredevil places the gun to Bullseye's head and pulls back the hammer. Click. The gun has no bullets. Which is a bit sadistic when you think about it, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, that's a what, what would have happened if the first shot he did had the bullet in it? If there were no bullets in the no, gun. No, no, but well, the, the yeah. H2 would have been blank. This is a 38 Magnum, the world's most powerful handgun. Do you feel lucky, punk? Poof. Bye. Lying, going, what? What just happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the fact that there's no gun, gun, bullets in the gun make it. The Daredevil's been a right sadist here. Yeah. Playing this game of Russian roulette with Bullseye and knowing there's no gut bullet in it. Mm. So. I, I like how twist at the end that there's no bullet in the gun was kind of foreshadowed a little earlier, depending on how you read the issue. Yeah, go on. Well, I read it as though he got this gun from Chucky. Yes, it is, the, his fa- it is Chucky's father's gun. And Chucky fired that gun and that was the bullet that should have shot Bullseye. But because Chucky shot it, there was nothing to shoot Bullseye with. Right, okay. I mean, Daredevil obviously knows there's no bullet in here. Yeah. So, alright. That's just how I read it. Yeah, alright, that's just, it's one interpretation. Um, I don't have page-by-page notes on this one. No. Because it's quite difficult to know where to begin with this extremely challenging and emotionally charged story. Miller leaves an awful lot ambiguous. Was Chucky's dad abusing him? We never find out. It's really... It's, it's not obvious, but yeah. it's, it's out there. But he may not be abusing him. He may just be a very strict father. He may not be abusing him, but he may be abusing but him. But there's also hints that he's abusive to his wife as well. Yes. So, it's there if you want to read that, because... 
our sympathies wouldn't be with him if he was abusing his wife and child. Yeah. And the story requires us to sympathise with him a little bit when we find out that he he's not a bad person. But he's not entirely but good. But he's not a good person either. This is what I'm talking about. It's very ambiguous. And was he guilty of what he was accused of? It doesn't say. We don't find out, do we? We never find out if he's guilty. Even Matt's radar sense, whether he knows he's guilty or not, yeah. we never find out. So again, Miller's been deliberately ambiguous. Was Daredevil's monologue out loud, or was that in his head? It's not depicted as speech balloons. No, but it's then captions. he's telling a story to Bullseye in his own head. Yeah. So, he's, he's telling a story to Bullseye, but not telling a story to Bullseye. Yeah, well, that's... Uh, I get this will come into a, like, another issue that we're going to look at further down the line. Yeah. Whether this was all in Daredevil's head, or whether he just played Russian roulette in silence, and this was going through his head while he was doing it. So Bullseye's really confused. Yeah, so Bullseye's <laughs> just sat there going, I don't know what's going on. Awkward minutes of silence yeah. between gunshots, <laughs> yeah. Click, and then five minutes, and Bullseye's sat there going, what's going on here, dude? <laughs> You've also got the question of what is the story saying yeah. what is the story commenting on it's commenting on something is it a commentary on the violent nature of our entertainment if so this is the right venue Miller gets criticised an awful lot for the violence in, in this comic during his tenure and this seems to be his answer to that criticism a commentary on violence on TV and entertainment generally and comics mm. in specific but what, what is he saying is he saying that good wins are that any idiot with fists can get his own way? Or is he, as the story asks us, is Daredevil fighting violence or teaching it? Is it actually a story of fathers and sons, the near realisation that neither father or son are perfect, that they make mistakes? Is Chucky going to become his father now that he's in therapy after shooting that child? Or did seeing Daredevil hit on his dad, not hit on him in that way bring him out of it. I mean, certainly Jack Murdoch's actions set Matt upon the path that he's on, but he still ends up using his fists in direct defiance of his father's wishes to get his job done as a vigilante. Yeah. And there's lots of questions and very few answers Mm. in this particular story. And this is without even getting into the debate about Matt's mental health in this story. Oh, yeah. That he would even go and play Russian roulette with Bullseye is damning enough. He's, he's, but he's doing up it, at this point, Yeah, though. but doing it with a gun that has no bullets in, and he knows this, is taunting Bullseye. Yeah. I'm not saying Bullseye don't deserve it, mm. but what does it say about our hero? Well, that's also what the issue's saying as well. Yeah, yeah, essentially. The art... Is sensational. Miller eschews usual Inca Klaus Janssen on this, his last as regular writer and artist, and instead goes for the far cleaner lines of Terry Austin. There's an awful lot of use of negative space prefiguring Sin City. Mm. Stark white backgrounds and splitting one panel into many, which gives the reader a feeling of unease, like there's a dreamlike quality to the issue. It is a masterful end to Miller's run. I like how you never see the hospital room they're in. It's just white all the time. Yeah. Um, that, that begs the question as well. How has Daredevil got in here with a gun as he's climbed through a window? He's really lucky no nurse walks in to change Bullseye's bed pan, isn't he? <laughs> why has is, why is Bullseye got such a big hospital room as well? The kingpin paying for it, is he? <laughs> or is the good supervillain medical insurance <laughs> that he's signed up to? Crime does pay. <laughs> the supervillain union. Yeah. That would 
totally work. Yeah. Doesn't it? Uh, I, I love that one. Yeah. I don't know why I love it. It's morally ambiguous. It doesn't answer any of the questions it raises. Mm. It's very like The Prisoner. Yeah. In that it's an ending, but it's not an ending. That may be why I like it. Mm. So it's a very, very, very good issue. What do you think of that one? I, I really liked it, but I prefer the, the Bullseye stuff to the Chucky stuff. I didn't really get into that as much. Did you know? I, I, what I really didn't like about it, though, the one thing I didn't like was the Matt's dad hitting him. Because that did was, seem a little bit out of character. Was that established beforehand, or was no, that... No, we'd never seen that uh, Matt's dad was dead hitting. Yeah, because I thought that was pretty new and unnecessary, really. Yeah, alright. No, no, I don't disagree with it. Mm. But Miller did an awful lot of retcons in his, yeah. in his run on Daredevil. That seemed like the, the boldest. And most misguided. Yeah. Perhaps. Okay, this run of comics was the prime influence on the 2003 Daredevil movie, written and directed by Mark Stephen Johnson. The movie is not as bad as you may have heard. It certainly doesn't deserve to be the second worst superhero movie ever, as one website has it. And it is much better than Daredevil's previous foray into live action, The Trial of the Incredible Hulk, although that's like saying rectal surgery is better than a cystoscopy. (laughs) Johnson captures the style, but not the substance of the comics, with many images torn straight from the pages. But it's this very thing that causes the film's problems. Johnson seems far more interested in having his actors do cool stuff for the sake of doing cool stuff. Bullseye especially just seems to stand around posing a lot. Certain changes also make little sense. Daredevil's father's name is changed from battling Jack Murdock in the comics to Jack the Devil Murdock in the film, a change that makes no sense within the context of the movie. In the comics, Matt takes the name Daredevil as an ironic twist on his own childhood nickname. Here, the implication is that he takes it in honour of his dad. So why is he not just called The Devil? Where does Daredevil come from? His father is also clearly a leg breaker in the film, whereas in the comics it was left as much more morally ambiguous if Jack was a leg breaker and were his fights were fixed, or if he was an innocent dupe. Changing Matt's origin from a heroic gesture, in the comics Matt saves the life of an elderly blind man about to be hit by a truck, to a random accident also changes the story significantly, and not really for the better. Where the film really suffers, though, is that its story is flawed from the get-go. By trying to tell the Electra Daredevil Bullseye Kingpin arc in one two-hour film, any subtleties are lost. Taking a story that was told over months of comic storytelling and reducing it to broad strokes mean that the film can't help but come across as a bad reworking of Tim Burton's Batman. Johnson's obsession with cool images is also a hindrance. The cast try their best. Ben Affleck is fine as Daredevil, but better as Matt Murdock. And it's in his scenes with John Favreau, perfect as Foggy Nelson, that Affleck comes alive. Jennifer Garner, sadly, is woefully miscast as Electra. Garner is a good actress, but she's an all-American girl-next-door type, not an exotic beauty from Greece, and blue contact lenses don't change that. Where was Morena Backer in when we needed her? Michael Clark Duncan was fine as a watered-down version of the Kingpin, a man so stupid he leaves a calling card at all his kills, and Colin Farrell mistook campy, over-laboured grunting for scurry as Bullseye, a man so stupid he carves a crosshair into his head, not a Bullseye. 
Whilst the theatrical version has pacing problems that are fixed in the director's cut, the flick still suffers from its director's desire to make a music video rather than an intelligent superhero movie. A wasted opportunity. I've only ever seen it once, years ago. What did you see? The director's one or the theatrical one? The theatrical one. Oh, right. I don't remember much of it and I don't feel like I'm missing out. It's not as awful, like I say, as people say it is, but it's not great. Yeah. It is one of those things, it's a missed opportunity. It's one of those where you got the feeling that he wanted to make a movie about Daredevil, but he wasn't asked with anything that happened with Daredevil before Frank Miller. Yeah. So what he really wanted to make was a Frank Miller Daredevil movie, completely ignoring the fact that Daredevil's, Frank Miller's Daredevil is told over this big fat omnibus. Mm. And all you get is just lots of iconic shots from the comic with little rhyme or reason. There's a bit of Guardian Devil in there as well. Was it not just animated stills? Forgetting the rest of the story. Yeah, it's it's just rushed. It's just botched. It's just it's not it's it's executed badly and yeah. ill conceived. Somebody should have said to him, "No, you need to do Daredevil Yellow before you can do this." It, it got a spin-off. Electra had a never over. never seen that. Have you? No. All right. It still got one. Well, seeing as I thought Jennifer Garner was the worst part of the film, apart from the script, and I like Jennifer Garner. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Alias and other stuff she's been in, but she she's not Electra. Mm. She's just not very well cast. The story continued after Miller left with Bullseye being spirited off to Japan to be healed. New artist William Johnson joined the book. I really liked Johnson's style, but he seems to have dropped off the face of the earth after Daredevil. The landmark issue 200, covered dated November 1983, is landmark because it's a regular issue. No special double-sized issue blurbs, no increase in price. In fact, there's nothing on the cover to make the purchaser realise that this is a special issue. Sure, the number 200's there, but it's not even a different colour. What it does have however, is an absolutely magnificent cover by John Byrne and Terry Austin. A beaten and battered Daredevil costume in tatters, right forearm in plaster, clutches his bloodied billy club as a twitching bullseye lies beneath him, his head askew. The cover really makes it look like Daredevil has snapped bullseye's neck. That Daredevil is almost completely in shadow only emphasises the magnificence of this cover. No enhancements, no empty promises or increased price could have made this any better. One of Byrne and Austin's best that doesn't seem to get anywhere near as much love as it should. Comments! I really liked it. I thought it was a lot better than the art on the inside. Did you? Yeah. See, I liked Bill Johnson. I don't know what ever happened to him. I can see you complain that the art inside's a little bit stiff. But... I thought after... Miller's run, the art didn't look as good. I thought Miller's art artwork alone set a high standard. Mm. That this artwork in particular looks a lot more dated than Miller's did, right? And not as good. Uh, fair enough. No, the cover was brilliant. That that was a rush job, apparently. Yeah. The original cover was rejected. Fair enough. And Byrne and Austin came in and, and, did, and it's it's an absolute blinder. I, I like how brutal it is. Yeah. It really does look like he snapped his neck and Bullseye's twitching. Well, that's, that's what I got from in his death And that's throat. right in the foreground on the cover. Yeah. With approved by the comics code, right there. <laughs> yeah. So, you know. Redemption was written by Denny O'Neill with art by William Johnson and Danny Bullinardi. Bullseye, fully healed, returns to New York to ask the Kingpin for his old jog back. The Kingpin says if Bullseye brings him Daredevil's corpse, they will talk. Bullseye doubles over in pain as the psychic link he has developed with Daredevil alerts him to DD's return to the Big Apple. Franklin picks Matt up at the airport and takes him home, Matt being typically evasive about Japan and how he broke his arm. 
Back at his brownstone, he exercises to try and compensate for the arm, when the Black Widow arrives to see how he is. She's stunned to see that he intends to go after Bullseye, and even more stunned to realise that Matt intends to end it all, killing Bullseye finally and forever. Daredevil tracks Bullseye down to an old wrestling arena where he recalls his father fighting his one and only wrestling match in a devil costume. Daredevil discards the memory. Tonight, Bullseye dies. Confronting each other in the ring, Bullseye tosses Electra's sigh at Daredevil as a taunt, but Dee Dee catches it and hurls it back, right through Bullseye's shoulder. Bullseye backs up into the corner and pulls a gun, fires and grazes Daredevil, and tells him he wanted to kill him. But every time he kills somebody from now on, he thinks it would be much better if Daredevil were alive to know that it was his fault. Daredevil snaps, grabs a hold of Bullseye and wraps the billy club around his neck, bracing it with his arms. He starts to strangle the life out of the man, but the words of his father, once said in his very halls, echo in his head. I disgraced myself that day. There's never a reason for not being who you are. Daredevil realised that all this time his obsession with Bullseye hasn't been to kill him. It's realising that he tried to. Dee Dee pulls long enough for Bullseye to black out and leaves, mentioning that Bullseye is inside to a couple of passing cops. It did dawn on me when we, I was just doing the synopsis there, I didn't actually write this as a note. How many times does the Kingpin get Bullseye to do a job for free in exchange for possibly getting more work? Yeah. Do you think it's because the Kingpin knows he's not going to succeed? Probably. So why pay him? It's a pity job. Yeah, if he if he kills Daredevil, bonus. Yeah. But he's not going to, <laughs> is he? My copy of this is absolutely knackered. Yeah. Because uh, I've had this I've had this for years, haven't I? I bought this off the stands, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and you can tell. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That it's not in particularly good condition. Given how we last saw Bullseye, he's making a complete and utter recovery. Is a little hard to swallow. Well, I it's comics then. I guess. But I, I wasn't a big fan of him coming back. Well, you know... The way Miller ended that character arc, it was a good end. And they should have left it. Well, because it's comics and it was a popular character. They're going to bring him back. It's like, say, killing off Peter Parker and then bringing him back a few years down the line. Or oh, killing off Superman. Yeah. Oh, or Batman. killing off Johnny Storm. Or killing Captain America. Yeah. Yeah. Any of these things that that comics seem to do all the time. The opening scene with the Kingpin, I actually thought was a little off. Bullseye's incredibly casual around the Kingpin, who, lest we forget, let him rot in jail. And he steals some of his presumably expensive cigars, and Kingpin doesn't reprimand him in any way. Maybe it's because he knows Daredevil's going to whoop his ass. Probably. I mean... Kingpin does slap Bullseye in the face, metaphorically, not yeah. literally, with the remark that Elektra was the better assassin. And I, I thought it was a little bit out of character that Bullseye didn't react to it. Mm. He just lets it slide. Now you'd think, even if he let it slide though, you'd think that later on in the issue it would have got to him yeah. that the Kingpin said that, but it doesn't even get mentioned, does it? No. It's never referred to again, which is a shame. Also, was the implication in this issue that the Kingpin owned that wrestling arena? Um, he gives Bullseye a key to yeah. a place where he can stay, and the next thing we see, he's in that wrestling arena. Yeah. So, is that the idea? I want to know why the Kingpin just says, oh, I've got a place you can stay, but doesn't tell him more. Maybe he does off-panel. Well, he just gives him a key. Maybe that's the thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The key. You've got to find out where it is. Yeah. I mean, I didn't understand why he's got it. I mean, the Kingpin may have bought it for the land. You know, after all, stocks may rise and fall, utilities and transportation systems may collapse. People are no damn good, but they'll always need land. 
and they'll pay through the nose to get it. <laughs> Remember what your father said. Land. Franklin picking Matt up is also rather useless. Yeah. He picks him up from the airport in a taxi that Matt could presumably have got himself. Just to show off his moustache. Just to show off his moustache to a guy who's blind and can't <laughs> yeah. see it anyway. And then Matt says, no, nah, I'm going to go home, I'm tired. Yeah. And Franklin's like, yeah, okay, I'll pay for the cab. <laughs> <laughs> Black Widow shows up. Black Widow and Matt Murdock have a, a, a long-standing relationship, which at one point was a relationship, if you know what I mean. The boot was even called Daredevil and Black Widow for a while. Okay. And they were knocking boots in San Francisco, which, you know, San Francisco. Anything goes, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, apparently, San Francisco. The Black Widow's a spy and probably has killed some people at some point in her career. So her decision to just not lecture Matt about his decision to kill Bullseye is a good one, but her stunned disapproval, one single panel with no dialogue or anything, just her face, is ably depicted. And she thought he was better than this. Yeah. And he's let her down. Well, that's being confirmed she's killed people. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's probably as well she doesn't disagree that Bullseye probably does need taking down. Yeah. So that may be an element of it as well. There's, there's that bit in Superior Spider-Man, which I thought was funny, where they're criticising Spider-Man for killing that robot guy. Yeah. And someone point, the, the Avengers are having a meeting, and someone points out that every single member of the They've Avengers killed has killed someone. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was a reason issue. That. Yeah. that was quite funny. We appear to go to Josie's next, and the window doesn't get broken, which I was quite saddened by. Okay. Josie's window gets broke every issue. It's, you know, it's just an established tradition by this point. Although maybe only in the Miller issues, I don't know. What are the odds that Bullseye would be in an arena that Jack Murdock fought in once and that his poster would still be up after all these years? Yeah. I was stretching it a little bit, wasn't it? It's just like walking through Manchester and seeing old posters from years before. Or walking through Manchester and seeing all the posters from the Captain America movie. I'm wondering, what are they still doing there yeah. from the 40s, from, yeah? Yeah, they're, they're in the 40s. Yeah. yeah. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> the fight with Bullseye is nowhere near as brutal as similar fights we've seen, both in the Frank Miller issues and the TV studio issue. It's not as good. Uh, no, it isn't. It's Psychologically, it's probably more worrying. Yeah. But it, you're right, it is not as good as the fight we've just seen in, in issue 181. Bullseye is far more of a chatty Cathy here than in those stories, and Daredevil's just intent on killing him, where Bullseye has decided not to kill Bullseye. Uh, sorry, Daredevil. Using Electra's sigh is a nice touch again, but it's a nod back to issue 181. Although Daredevil's line about missing Bullseye's heart when he hurls it back at him rings hollow. Surely his radar sense yeah. would enable him to aim properly. That's one of the big deals they make about his radar sense. Bullseye also references 191 outright, stating that Daredevil came and talked to him, which heavily implies that Daredevil's monologue was out loud in that issue. Mm. So surely this means Bullseye knows that he's Matt Murdock then. Yeah. Wouldn't it? Yeah. If that monologue's out loud, Bullseye knows his secret identity. Unless he only said certain things. Unless we saw more of the monologue than Bullseye heard. Yeah. But that is even more wacky, that yeah. either. And my, in my head, he either said it out loud or he didn't. 
if he's only saying bits of it, that makes Matt even more of it. <laughs> Maybe Bullseye just forgot. And Bullseye's even more confused. He's only getting bits of the story. <laughs> Bullseye shows up, tells him bits of a story, and then shoots yeah. him. Well, they could have established here that Bullseye was out to kill Daredevil because he's told him that fractured <laughs> narrative story that made no sense. He just wanted an ending. Yeah, he goes after him going, you made a crappy <laughs> art movie and made me watch it. <laughs> student film boy with the realisation that he's no killer we essentially wrap up the Miller run on Daredevil and any dangling plot threads from here on in the book will take a different tack under O'Neill and it will be a mixed bag of typical O'Neill-isms and missteps although the run itself is not at all bad this issue in and of itself is good an enjoyable wrap up although the conclusion is never really in any doubt I never felt even reading this as a kid that Daredevil would take that last step there's none of the ambiguity of issue 181 or issue 191 but I feel that the title in this time period was too wrapped up in Bullseye and it's nice to wrap that up and move on well, saying that, I have noticed that we have just been covering Bullseye stories for the yeah. past two weeks. Do you know... And I, all of it is one story as well. I only noticed that after the fact. I mean, I make jokes all the time that, I planned this, and I never <laughs> do. But this was one of those instances where, no, I didn't. Yeah. I picked a bunch of Daredevil issues that I remembered being good. Yeah. And I was quite prepared to swap them out if they weren't as good as I remembered. And I almost did with the death of Mike Murdoch. Mm. I almost swapped that out for another issue. And then I thought, no, I'll leave it. Go with me initial gut instinct. And it was only when I was doing the notes for this last week that I realised that essentially we've told the Daredevil bullseye story. Yeah. From the fight in the, um, in the TV studio through to summarising the Electra stuff through to this they were all linked together and yeah. that is one of those it was just happy look, look essentially happenstance yeah. it worked out really well for us I was reading it thinking are we doing a Daredevil show or a Bullseye show <laughs> so were you reading it and thinking my god dad's really put some thought into this <laughs> no 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 <laughs> well that never crossed your mind did it <laughs> that's my boy uh, finally a more offbeat choice to close out on Daredevil issue 223, cover dated October 1985, was a Secret Wars 2 crossover, which I'm sure you're made up about. It, it was it was great. <laughs> Marvel had experienced phenomenal success with the Secret Wars series, a 12-part toy advert that boosted Marvel's sales and writer Jim Shooter's ego. The success of Secret Wars has, it has been reported by John Byrne and others, caused Shooter to start interfering in everybody's work, whereas before he picked the teams and let them get on with it. This sales success and egomania led to the development of Secret Wars 2, this time a nine-issue series, but one that would cross over into every single Marvel title of the time and irrevocably change comics for good and ill. In Secret Wars, a mystical being known as the Beyonder summoned a bunch of heroes to his plastic planet to watch them fight to better learn the differences between good and evil. The Beyonder may never have heard of Earth, but he sure must have watched a lot of Star Trek. In this sequel, the Beyonder came to Earth. Hilarity ensued, not least when Spider-Man had to teach him how to take a crap. I wish I was making that up. The cover is by Byrne again. He only did four Daredevil covers, and we picked issues with two of them. What are the odds? Again, 
happenstance. A large shadow looms over Daredevil and he backs into a corner. It's okay, not burn at his best, but apparently he specifically asked for the cover to be all red and Daredevil to be coloured white so as to make the terror seem a little more real. The colourist or the editor ignored this and coloured it as is. The corner box has changed and there is a new logo. It's not as good as the other one, is it? No. The new logo. Bit bland. I can see why they went to the original. The Price was written by Denny O'Neill and Jim Shooter with art by David Mazzuccelli and Kim DeMulder. Matt Murdock's latest flame, Gloria Ann O'Brien, is mugged by Skeeter Frizzell, who steals her camera. Matt is happy she wasn't hurt and says to Gloriana she can buy another camera, but Gloriana states that it was her father's given her to capture the grand and glorious world a piece at a time. She could buy a new camera, but she could never replace that one. Matt swears to Gloriana he'll try to use his underworld contacts to find it. At the law offices of Nelson and Murdoch, the one from beyond, rocks up, rocking the latest flock of seagulls-inspired fashions of the day, and hires the two men to enable him to legally and legitimately take over the world. After Foggy picks his chin up off the floor, Matt completely forgets that this is a 50-50 partnership, and vetoes the deal out of hand and storms off. Foggy, however, is swayed by a retainer of $1 million and gets to work. The one from beyond pursues Matt to try and convince him otherwise, but Matt is already Daredevil and in pursuit himself of Gloriana's camera. He tracks the thief to a roach plant in Brooklyn where the one from beyond waits for him. Matt promises he'll think about the offer, but he's a little busy right now. Inside the plant, Dee Dee's mind is preoccupied with the Beyonder's offer and decides to accept just as he swings in from the rafters to surprise Skeeter. It's Daredevil who is surprised, however, when his swing is interrupted by the Beyonder's retainer, the Gift of Sight, which throws Dee Dee off and sends him careening into a vat of toxic chemicals. Instead of coming out with green hair and white skin, Daredevil marvels at his newfound sight and immediately heads to Gloriana and they do all kinds of touristy stuff. High atop the Empire State Building, however, Matt realises that he's been bought. He calls on the Beyonder to take back his retainer, a move that surprises the one from beyond, and he takes back his gift. Daredevil then tracks Skeeter down, solves his problems by punching him, did we learn nothing from issue 191, and then recovers Gloriana's camera. As he takes it back, he tells Skeeter that he now knows what Gloriana meant when she described the world as grand and glorious. Do you like this one? Because again, page by page notes are hard to come by. I liked the whole vision thing. Yeah, that's the best part of the story, yeah. by far. Rare for a Secret Wars 2 crossover that the Secret Wars element should be the best part of the story. <laughs> yeah. But I thought the rest of it wasn't very well written. Did you know? No. For Denny O'Neill? No. Mm. All that camera stuff uh, seemed a lot very rushed. But I, I like the idea that there is a way that you can legally own the world yeah. I want to know what those laws are it probably costs much more money than you would ever have if you had that much money you wouldn't spend it on wanting to take over the world would you not though no I'd spend it on a rocket to Mars just think about the idea of owning the world though yeah but then you've got to look after it and people would just be bugging you all the time that's how much too much trouble but then you've got servants there's every person on the world yeah but you then have to employ a bunch of people to run the world for you you don't have to you just keep uh, this, it a secret you're, this the, is, you're the Illuminati then yeah but that, that, I never understood why Doctor Doom or Blofeld wanted to take over the world what are you going to do when you've got it it seems like it's more trouble than it's worth to me I just want to knock over a few banks get a lot of money 
and, and retire. I'm with the Flash's rogues, quite frankly. Okay. They seem to have a very narrow worldview. <laughs> and quite frankly, I'm on their side. I could subscribe to that worldview. I want to knock over some banks, earn a comfortable living, be the purple man. <laughs> I long to be the purple man. I don't want to be Blofeld. I don't want to be Doctor Doom. I don't want to be Lex Luthor. Purple okay. man. He's about my level. <laughs> Being able to just walk in and say, these aren't the droids you're looking for. And the guy goes, droids? What are you talking about? <laughs> Give me £50,000. Oh, all right, okay. there you go. I'm down with that. that. That's my level of villainy. Fair enough. I'm a man of simple taste. Hey, Luke. Jessica Jones. <laughs> Uh, I'll be honest, I thought this was one of the better Secret Wars 2 tie-ins, by which I mean this didn't completely suck. O'Neill manages to tell a personal story, despite being saddled with a guest appearance by a man who seems to have modelled his entire look on Michael Jackson circa Thriller. <laughs> the Beyonder's appearance, rather like an appearance by Gary Coleman, screams 80s, but it works well in this story, giving us a rather touching third act in which Matt gets to experience the wonders of New York with his eyes for the first time in nearly 30 years. The character beats are what makes this work, because I've got to be honest, if I worked or dated Matt Murdock, I'd find him infuriating. Firstly, he never explains to Gloriana how he got his sight back. He just says something vague like, oh, I'll tell you in a few years, to which she should have replied, no, this is a huge deal, tell me now! <laughs> Secondly, he then just leaves her on top of the Empire State Building. He just dumps her there in the midst of a gale. He couldn't have summoned the Beyonder where he was. There was no Daredevil stuff involved there. It was a retainer offered to Matt for services provided by Matt. There was no reason to not tell Gloriana, as there was no secret identity to jeopardise. Instead, he leaves her to make her own way home in that storm. Cheers, Matt. It's very chivalrous of him, isn't it? Thirdly, Matt ditches this extremely well-paying client without so much as a conference with Foggy. It's also odd that the Beyonder was willing to let Matt keep his sight, but doesn't let Foggy keep the million. Yeah. <laughs> Greed is good. The art is early Mazzuccielli, in which there are touches of Colon and Wally Wood, but none of it has the originality that his work will later come to feature. Even with that said, to be honest, I always found Mazzuccielli's work far too grounded for an artist on superhero strips, his Batman work especially, featuring little in the way of grandeur and more favouring Adam West in his tights. His Daredevil stuff, though, was normally pretty good, especially in Born Again, and just to contradict myself, because I'm nothing if not a contradictory mass, uh, is beyond a splash pit, he's quite cosmic. In this issue, isn't it? What I, what I quite like is at the end of it, he punches that skeeter guy <laughs> to get the camera back, and then he gives him the camera, and he's just like, alright, mate, thanks for the camera, I'll be on my way now. The is like, alright, okay, cool. So, after issue 191, he's he's just gone back to using violence to solve his problems. I just, I just like how he's just beaten up that guy, and then they're both mates after the end of it. <laughs> yeah, see, I'm not going to cut you off to jail, there doesn't <laughs> seem any point, but, you know, I, if I need anything again, I know what'll find you. Yeah. That's pretty much it. There's a bit where he falls into the chemicals and he comes out, and I'm expecting <laughs> him to turn into the Joker. <laughs> that would have been funny. Does that, does that turn him into the creeper then? Yes, he would be the creeper. <laughs> yeah. That would be great. And thus we bring our celebration of Daredevil to a close. <laughs> not Bullseye. Not Bullseye. Frank Miller would return to Daredevil one of the single best stories not only in Daredevil's history but in all of comics. Born again. In this epic seven part story, Miller and artist Mazzuccelli would strip away everything Matt Murdock has when Karen Page returns to his life, now drug addled, and lets it slip to the kingpin that Murdock is Daredevil. A masterfully told piece of suspense, oft imitated, rarely bettered. Born again may be Miller's finest single achievement in comics. Anna Shenty and John Romita Jr. followed with a run that is very divisive. Personally, I found it 
interesting and John Jr's art was some of the best of his career but Nocenti's soapbox polemic did become worrying after a while worth it just for being very different the character went through some ups and downs in the 90s as did pretty much everybody but there was no defining 90s reimagining for Daredevil like there was for Superman Batman or Spider-Man Dan Chichester tried with the whole fall from grace arc which introduced a truly awful new costume that made the trial of the incredible Hulk Daredevil suit seem adequate Carl Kiesel tried to bring the fun in with his run but pretty much everybody from fan to pro seemed to think Frank Miller's success was predicated on gloom which it wasn't if you actually read the stuff and dismissed Kessel's work Volume 1 of Daredevil was brought to an end with issue 380 in October of 1998 Volume 2 kicked off with a story by Kevin Smith and art by Joe Quisada called Guardian Devil, another bullseye Daredevil confrontation that culminated with Bullseye killing off another of Daredevil's girlfriends, Karen Page. It was a good read, but killing off girlfriends was a cliché even back then, and I want to expect more from Kevin Smith. Apparently, the baby at the end of this series houses the reincarnated spirit of Matt's trainer, Stick. Yeah. Then Bendis followed with an expansive storyline that ran for what seemed like decades, in which Matt's alter ego was revealed to the world. Again, it's not a bad run, but it's far too long, and reads like most of Bendis's stuff, a love letter to Mame and Miller. Ed Brubeck had closed out the run before it turned into a story called Shadowlands, in which Matt declared himself the kingpin of New York, and T'Challa, the Black Panther, became Daredevil for a bit. Volume 3 of Daredevil, which, as this is being recorded, just wrapped up, was written by Mark Wade, with art by Marcus Martin, Chris Samney and others, and is, simply put, one of the best comics currently on the market. Wade has fun with Daredevil again, but can bring the agony when he needs to, with subplots that tear your heart out, whilst other moments leave you with a goofy grin. The Foggy Nelson gets cancer arc is heartbreaking, but every so often a character will just show up with an I'm not Daredevil t-shirt on, and you'll find yourself smiling again. Volume 4 is starting up very soon. He's pretty much Marvel's Batman, only with a far more complicated personal life. He started off as a Spider-Man knockoff before becoming something far more. He's best known for what he can't do, as for what he can. He prowls the streets at night and the courtrooms by day. A guardian. Here comes Daredevil, the man without fear. Vision he got. And that about wraps it up. Is that right? That wasn't it. It was, yeah. <laughs> Next time! Yeah, there's also a, a Daredevil movie coming up. They're doing a Netflix series, not doing a movie. No, no, um, Daredevil vs. Superman, I think it's called. I, I think you. I, I, they're doing a sequel to Daredevil and calling it Daredevil vs. Superman. Yeah, they've got Ben Affleck and they put him in the uh, Daredevil costume. He's got a black marker. Right, I see. That seems a bit stupid to me, that. Doing a sequel to a major movie about a character who's very popular yeah. and, and combining it with another popular character just to unput box office. Yeah. Daredevil versus Superman. Who'd have thought that out? <laughs> Very odd. Very odd indeed. Anyway, next time, as I was saying, before I was rudely interrupted by the dust man. Uh, Flash Rebirth. Yes. We're going to cover Flash Rebirth next time. All six issues in one show. We'll get through them in a flash. Indeed, we will. God, that was very fun. <laughs> We'll bring you up to speed on Flash Rebirth <laughs> next week. That was better. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> bye bye. We'll see you next week. Bye.
Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. And we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Has spilled his drink all over the place. It's not gone on your book, so let's It better not have gone on my book. It's not. Better not have damaged my daredevil omnibus child. I've already damaged it myself. Oh, now it looks like I've wet myself. Yes, it does look like you've wet yourself. How amusing is that to the listeners at home? Ah, I can picture Michael wetting his pants. Because <laughs> this is an audio medium. <laughs> yes, the thing is, if there are people at home picturing that, they are disturbed individuals. <laughs> Alright, good. It just looks like I've made a leak. Yes.